1: Right rug flooring.
2: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for one eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you.
3: I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump says Taylor Swift endorsing President Biden would be disloyal to the man who made her so much money. We have such a great show today. MSNBC's own Mika Brzezinski tells us about her journey to help women, and she also tells the story of how she mentored me. Then we'll talk to pollster Adam Carlson about the flaws in polling and the 2024 election. But first we have the host of the Enemies List, the one, the only, the Lincoln Project's own Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my bestie, Rick Wilson.
0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, or whatever time this podcast airs in <laughs> your part of the world, and I'm glad to be back with you.
3: Oh no, we're like giddy <laughs> in this horrible, unbearable way.
0: I plan today, as we record this, to be unbearable all goddamn day.
3: (laughs) I prefer insufferable.
0: Well, I could be insufferable, too.
3: (laughs) You can do it all.
0: I, I just finished writing this piece about McConnell that hasn't gone up yet, but you know what? I'm just fucking done. I'm done with these people.
3: Let's have a moment here. First, we got a lot, a lot of fucking bullshit to talk about. I want to start with the very bad, no good week that the Republicans in the House of Representatives had.
0: Yeah. Let's go through it one step at a time. When you get to the (laughs) first part of it, of Trump not being immune from prosecution, which, you know, it seems like that happened like a month and a half ago, but it was Monday. Mm-hmm. When you look at that decision alone, <laughs> it, it is a nuclear bomb going off on the January 6th case. And Trump really, really was depending right. some method to, to spin that case down because, look, he knows that gutless Merrick Garland is eventually going to say to Jack Smith, OK, boss, time's up. Got to call it. He's the Republican nominee. We can't be we can't be seen as um, uh, as biased.
3: Yes, yeah, so we have two minutes to
0: trash Merrick Garland? You call me anytime, day or night, and I'll trash Merrick Garland. I'm so frickin' done.
3: Do all special counsels have to be Republican? Like, you know, there are a lot of fucking Democrats out there.
0: Generally speaking, the special counsels of, of our recent memory, Durham, <laughs> who aside from magnificent facial hair, Seems to have been an utter fucking legal chuckle fuck of the first order. You know, the the infamous Durham report was going to reshape America forever. And it turned out to be nothing. This guy or HUD or Hoop or whatever his fucking name is. I'm sorry, but the level of unprofessionalism in that report, the level of editorializing in that report, I'm not the first or the last to make this comparison. This was very much like Jim Comey. I don't have evidence, but I'm going to go out and slap him around a little bit. You know, I think I think Harwood said that yesterday. And and I just it's just like there's nothing. There's nothing in this report that is more important than the finding that they're not going to bring criminal charges against him. Set aside the editorializing bullshit. okay? and they were Biden's handwritten personal notes that were ex post facto classified in some of the cases, the real drama that they're trying to make out of this thing is, oh, Biden is seen He's drooling in his p- porridge. Oh, ho, ho. And, and I will say this. Mm. I liked angry Biden last night. I liked angry Biden going out there and knocking the shit out of some of those reporters. We love our friends in the press, but that instinct to <laughs> bend over backwards <laughs> to show that you're not biased by being dicks when you get a chance to smash Biden a little bit. It struck me at least as a bit much. Because Donnie Johnny, Johnny Mumblefuck over there, who thinks he ran against Barack Obama, and who thinks that Nikki Haley was in charge of the Capitol on 1-6, I am sorry. I want to see them bang Trump with questions about his mental acuity, because he is much, much shakier mentally than Joe Biden is by a good stretch.
3: Well, I have this theory that if you're defending yourself, you're you losing, are. so I never defend myself, but I will say one thing, which is her worked in the Trump administration.
0: That was a choice made by Merrick Garland. I'm sorry. I know everybody had this soft spot for Merrick Garland because of the uh, the whole situation with-
3: He's not a Supreme Court judge. Right. I mean, fuck him, by the way.
0: I'm not a Supreme Court justice either, and woulda, coulda, yeah. shoulda, okay? <laughs> But he is so cautious and so programmatic. And I know, look, do I want the attorney general of the United States behaving like a Bill Barr? No, I do not. But do I also want the attorney general of the United States behaving like he's scared of his own shadow? And when the bad guys are aggressively pursuing epic fuckery? No, I do not.
3: Yeah. I mean, that is really such an important point. Democrats continue to play by the 2012 rules and Republicans have weaponized the entire federal government. So this week, the House Republicans tried to impeach a cabinet secretary because they didn't like what he was doing. It didn't work because they can't do math. But I mean, come on.
0: The absolute epic dumb fuckery of the Republicans in the House. If you were in an ordinary situation, the speaker would slink away in shame. He would go and leave to spend more time with his son's porn app on his phone whatever the hell. It was so humiliating. And the guy ran out of there like a scalded dog. I mean, he ran out of there like his dick was on fire. And honestly, this whole thing was a a trial run for impeaching Joe Biden, which is their biggest desire, their greatest passion.
3: And they don't have the votes because math is
0: hard. And they're going to have even fewer votes soon because more Republicans are pulling the switch. They're getting out of there. They're running.
3: Here's a question I have for you. So Republicans, MAGA Mike Johnson, been in the House since 2016. <laughs> I mean, I've been in the House longer than Mike Johnson's been in the House. This guy, he has decided that he's going to put these bills on the floor and just pray to Jesus that he has the votes. Turns out Jesus is not a
0: vote whip. Here's my sequence of House speakers I have either known or dealt with or been around for, okay? Jim Wright, Tom Foley, Dennis Hastert, Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy. You know the difference of all of these people and Moses Johnson?
3: They can do math.
0: They could do math. They could count votes. They knew when they had the votes and when they didn't. And the number one rule. The single most important rule of all as speaker, never bring a vote to the floor unless you're going to win. This is something they beat into your head on day one of speaker school. And these guys just don't get it. They just didn't understand it. And I'm sorry, I have very little pity for him. He embarrassed himself.
3: So he brought the Mayorkas vote. It lost. Then he went and brought this Israel funding standalone. It lost. One of the things I want to ask you is like, so here you have the five vulnerable Republicans like Mike Lawler, that fucking guy, and these guys, and you have about five or six in California and you have uh, Republicans with a one vote majority, um... What happens when Mike Lawler goes back to the Hudson Valley and is like, yes, I voted to impeach the cabinet secretary first time in 100 years. Yes, I voted for an Israel aid standalone, which, by the way, Israelis didn't want. What happens then?
0: None of these guys, okay, not one of these guys in that Biden 18 has a argument to make that they're not all on the crazy train. Every single one of them has to go home and say, yeah, by the way, I know we didn't do anything on X, Y, or Z issue that you care about, but we did vote to impeach the DHS secretary. How do you take that out there? That's a bold strategy, Cotton, to go out and say, we're going to go out and, and campaign on the fact that we impeached. It's so obscure. It's so in the weeds. It's so small ball crazy. I'm just like, who's running this thing? And the answer is apparently nobody, because if someone with a brain.
3: No, I think the answer is Donald Trump.
0: That's true. Let's not forget they wanted to make him Speaker of the House.
3: Right. I mean, that would have been amazing. But this is going to be their problem with the RNC chair. They want Rana out. Rana, this is a woman who has spent the last whatever 10 years basically just destroying herself, proving the adage that a guy I know once came up with everything Trump touches dies. <laughs> this Rana, this is the worst job, right? You have to raise money for the Republican Party. Donald Trump is spending all his money on lawyers and then I guess he's going to have to put some money in this 83 million dollar uh-huh. bond, right? And then he's going to have another 100 million, 200, 300 million coming up for the fraud case. So Rona McDaniel has to raise money, convince big donors it's not going to Trump's legal fees. I mean, this is a terrible job. Mm-hmm. So they're going to remove her and put someone else who was less good at fundraising in this job. How does this work?
0: Laura Trump is going to be the best Republican Party chairman ever. (laughs) And I hope she stays there for a hundred years.
3: Then Eric is calling people, asking them for money. I mean, you had a speaker. And again, I am no fan of Kevin McCarthy, but you had someone who sort of knew how to do it a little bit, right? Then Tom Emmer's wanted to do it. Trump was like, not MAGA enough. Let's get someone who's really incompetent because that's the true spirit of MAGA.
0: Ergo. I can see so many outcomes of selecting a different RNC chairman that end up in clownish disaster. And Every single one of the people that could take that job that would make Trump happy, every single one of them are going to do one thing, shovel money back to Donald Trump. And every penny that small-dollar donors put into the RNC right now, or big-dollar donors, by the way, this is RNC's major donor season. Right now, if this was the Bush or Reagan administrations, right now the RNC chairman, whether it was Michael Steele or whomever, would be out saying, "Okay, we're going to do the convention so- AT&T, we'd like a half a million dollars. And Democrats do this too right about now, right? Everybody's doing their major fundraising. I got to tell you, if you're a major fundraiser, major dollar fundraiser, a corporate board type, you're thinking, the hell I'm putting a damn dime into that rat hole. And that's why the RNC is broke right now. That's why they're broke. When, When I was working for Bush in the 2000 cycle, I think at this point, the RNC had something like $180 million in the bank. This is nuts that they have that they have $8 million of cash on hand. And
3: then a line of credit, because you know <laughs> things are going great when you need a line of credit.
0: So, But they, they owe on the eight something like five. And so <laughs> that's why they're out getting a line of credit. I mean, at this point, they're going to be out like getting, a, getting a, a, a title loan on their cars.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's so bad and we shouldn't make fun of them, but I think we should because fuck them. So, I mean, what is amazing to me is you have a Republican Presidential candidate who was an incumbent, who has such a tight grip on the party, and also everyone else is so fucking scared of him that he now controls the House. Right. He's fighting with McConnell in the goal of controlling the Senate. They don't even have the majority, but he wants McConnell out.
0: And and by the way, they they may get they may get that.
3: Yeah. I think McConnell's like, fuck this shit, don't you think?
0: Well, look, I think he'll finish his term. Right.
3: He's not going to do the Kevin where he leaves in January.
0: (laughs) Right. Although I will say this, you know, a lot of McConnell people, a lot of McConnell folks that are out there are like, you know, he could rally one last time. I'm like. If the motherfucker was going to rally, he should have rallied on January 6th when there was a moment where he had a majority of the Republicans in the caucus, a majority of the Republicans in the caucus were with him and every Democrat, of course, and he wouldn't do it.
3: Can we just go to the alternative universe for a second where McConnell whips those votes, Trump gets impeached, and it is clear that he can never run again. Republicans, fast forward, they are unstoppable. They have Nikki Haley as the nominee. I mean, they did this to themselves and to all of us.
0: They chose this path. Here's one of the things that I think is really important to remember. The mob terrifies everybody. It terrifies Mitch McConnell. It terrifies Mike Johnson. It terrifies every Republican out there. They're all petrified of Trump and his mob and the idea of their violence and their cruelty and their willingness to use violence and force against people. You know, you want to know why the Supreme Court was so cautious yesterday or the other day in their hearings? It's because they're worried about becoming targets of the damn mob. They don't want to be targets of the mob.
3: Shea Moss, Ruby Friedman. I mean, they ruin your life. I mean, that's the, you know, they're really scary.
0: They are scary. And you know what? And, and the people that, that will not put up with their shit are, you know, assholes like me dragged out feet first. But the intimidation is where that alternative universe failed. We could have been in a different world. We could have been in a better place. But, you know, that day... Mitch McConnell said, nope, we're not going to whip votes for this. If for settle at the ballot box and not in the impeachment, the voters have already spoken. I mean, what could, what, what? And as one of his aides said, what's the harm in humoring him?
3: Right. And I think the level of anxiety right now is pretty high.
0: Oh, I would certainly say that's the case. It's pretty high. And there are very few people who feel confident right now. In American democracy. And you know what? And that kind of sucks. That's kind of a really shit place to be of not being confident in a nation that had a pretty good run of people understanding that while it was messy and loud and complicated and stupid, our country was really fundamentally strong. And now mo- most people don't share that view anymore. And again, because of Donald Trump.
3: Exactly. I also want to mention that there is some really fucked up shit going on with the Montana Senate race.
0: Oh, Matt Rosendale's coming back, baby. Okay. So
3: Matt Rosendale is like one of the few people who is really just so bad. I mean, he's like Dr. Oz, but without the... Is he one of the few, Molly? I think there are okay. more than a few. <laughs> Let's be honest, you, though. He is pink MAGA.
0: He is High tone MAGA.
3: So he was endorsed by MAGA Mike Johnson, and then MAGA Mike Johnson thought better of it and said
0: that he was unendorsed.
3: <laughs> it's been a bad week for Mike Johnson.
0: Apparently, Mike Johnson's not an ace at picking them, as they say. <laughs> this has not been missed on, on a lot of people now that MAGA Mike is, shall we say, less less perceptive as a political analyst than he might otherwise be.
3: Incredible.
0: <laughs> you can't wake up in the morning these days and and expect anything but more of this chaos. Oh, so only two hundred
3: and sixty nine days to go.
0: That's right. That's right. That's right.
3: Did you know Rick Wilson and I are bringing together some friends for a general election kickoff party at City Winery in New York on March 6th? We're going to be chatting right after Super Tuesday about what's going on, and it is going to probably be the one fun night for the next 80 days. If you're in the New York area, please come by and join us. You can go to City Winery's website and grab a ticket. Mika Brzezinski is the host of Morning Joe and Morning Mika, as well as the founder of the Know Your Value movement. Welcome back to Fast Politics. Mika. Yay. Hi. Hi. I am so excited to have you. And this is one of these things where you're doing this mentorship project. Yes, I am. You mentored me. So oh. <laughs> and I saw this, I was like, wait, so let's talk about, first of all, I love the idea that you have to be over 50 for this <laughs> one category.
4: To so get on the list. Yeah, you're too young. I'm
3: too young. It's like finally something I'm too young for. So the thing I think people don't know is you've been doing this for a long time and this did not start as a glamorous project.
4: No, it didn't. But can I say a story about you first? Always. And then we'll talk about how non-glamorous this was. So somebody once told Molly that she would never be something. Yeah. And she told me that story just in passing, blah, 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 blah. Like it was, you know, (laughs) I ate a sandwich and someone told me I would never be a, I don't know, on-air contributor or something. And I thought to myself, she just said that like she was eating a sandwich. Like (laughs) that was okay. And it was like hard for the course. It was just something that she decided that she would accept. And I thought to myself, that is effed up. Like right now, I don't know this woman that well, but I need to talk to her. Yeah. We need to have a little talk. And then she needs to have a little talk with that special person. <laughs> That's all. That's all I'm going to say. That was my mentoring. You're welcome. Yes. And let me just say it. You were
3: right. Um, so I want you to talk about the beginnings of Know Your Value, because like, this is a really actually a passion project.
4: It is. I mean, I don't even know if it was 12 or 13 years ago. A long time ago, I sort of realized that I didn't know my value. And I started documenting all the disasters in my career where I was so close to making great money or getting a great promotion. And I would literally be the person who made sure it didn't happen or who made sure that I was the first person to get a job at a certain level was only paid like 20% what the last people who had that job was. Like, I was so lucky to be there. And I realized I was in a cycle. So as I started documenting these things, and then I had my own like real-life equal pay battle at MSNBC, I decided to write the book, Know Your Value. I wrote in real time what my experience at MSNBC was and actually read it on the floor of Phil Griffin's office. He was the president of MSNBC at the time. He, Joe, and I sat together and read the manuscript, and I thought, I'm so fired. But I also thought, he's not telling me I'm not publishing this. Like, he knows right. that I want the relationship we had at that point. <laughs> I yeah. was not coming in asking for permission. <laughs> but I, I wanted him to have a heads up and to see it, and also to have a chance to sort of make sure I wasn't missing an angle on something since it was so close to the network. And the funny story about Phil is he was like, Mika. Mika, I don't say man, Joe. You know, I, I, I say, no, Joe. Like, And I was like, Bill, I was trying to protect you. He's like, that's not how I talk. You got to put the <laughs> F-bomb back in there. And I was like, oh, this is your one change. Okay. Anyhow, but the book was released and it immediately was on New York Times and all these business lists. And it took off in a way that I could have never expected where people were like stopping us on the street I read your book, I got a raise. I read your book, I got a divorce. I read your book, I changed my life. I read your book, I got a raise. I have heard hundreds of times because knowing your value is not just about getting value back financially, which I definitely put the map out for that, but it's about getting value back in every relationship, which is why you stopped me cold when you told me that someone had said what they said to you and you just accepted it. That was not value back. That no. was like giving you a, like a turd on a platter. Okay. And you going, oh, that looks so good. No. So, like, it's learning how to say it. And so, when I realized that was that message was so resonant and there was such a hunger for it, I started doing events and I actually, you know, went rogue and started on my own event in Hartford, Connecticut, just to see if anybody would show up. And those three words, they filled the room and then some.
3: Will you please tell the story about what happened in Hartford? Because you've told the story to me and it feels like such an important moment.
4: Well, it was incredible, actually. I had put together the event with my producers, Doobie McDowell and Robin Jengris, and we had a couple of weeks to put it together because I do everything in a rush. And I'd say three weeks before it started, we had at the Marriott downtown Marriott Marquis in Hartford. I had used my sort of notoriety as a local host from 15 years earlier, and I had gotten a lot of sort of just Gail King, who used to work in Hartford. She was lined up. I got companies in the area to sponsor it and CEOs to show up. And I had this idea at the very last minute to have a competition where five women that we pick out of videos that were sent in would compete on stage for $10,000 bonus. They would have to pitch for one minute or less what their value is, no matter what their reality was in life. Stay at home mom, mom. CEO, philanthropist, assistant. You know, it doesn't matter. Just tell me what it is that you bring to the table and sell it. And we had five women. We had so many videos sent in. Somebody sent video from prison, literally. CEOs sent videos. It was incredible, the response we got. And we found five women. We coached them as best we could. And they got up on stage and it Was amazing. First of all, the whole room, it was 500 women in the room. We had perhaps 200 more people who walked in. There was a waiting list. People were lining the walls, and they were all so supportive. They were so invested in these women that they had gotten to know all day long throughout the event. And we had a woman from Madison, Connecticut, who was fired from her job on Wall Street. She was in her 50s. She had opened a secondhand store for babies and children's clothing in downtown Madison. And she wanted to use the money to start a website for the moms to interconnect. And we had a woman who had just moved to Middletown, Connecticut, from Houston, who wanted to be a dress designer. We had a grandmother in her 70s with beautiful long dreadlocks. And she had like 10 grandchildren. She lived in the north end Of Hartford and she wanted to open an animal sanctuary. We had this blonde woman, a mom of three girls who had been dumped by her husband from Avon, Mm. Connecticut, who wanted to open a gym in her basement so she could be a trainer as well as take care of her kids. And we had an assistant named Jennifer Hotchkiss um, with a booming voice. She worked as an assistant. She wanted to be the boss someday. But she needed a college education. She was a single mom and she wanted to be the first person in her family to go to college. She Mm -hmm. named Bay Path College in Hartford because I guess they had flexible hours and she was a mom. The woman who was fired from Wall Street one, Darcy sort of, she had this incredible pitch and she came running up on stage. She gave me a big hug and I noticed a tube was sticking out of her neck. And I was like, are you okay? And everyone's clapping and no one can hear us. And she's like, Mika, I had heart surgery 48 hours ago. The doctor told me not to come. There's a (laughs) wheelchair backstage. I had to come. I had to tell you my value. I was practicing on the stretcher. Oh my God, please don't die right here. But that's amazing. And I'm like, I'm so moved. Let's close out the day. This is a good know your value event. First one, let's get out of here before anything goes wrong. And then this woman starts pulling on my dress saying, I need the microphone. I need the microphone. She seemed pretty elegant. So I said, "Uh, we have an announcement, I guess, and I hand her the microphone. And she goes, hello, I am the CMO of Bay Path College, Jennifer Hotchkiss, the runner-up, young lady, and she pointed right at her. She goes, you are amazing. Come see us on Monday. We are going to give you a full ride. And the whole room went, ah. And we all just gasped. And you could hear this collective gasp. And then, like, we all started crying. Every single person on stage, in the room. And Jennifer was bawling. And she graduated with highest honors two years later and was the graduation speaker at Bay Path and is on her way. That was how Know Your Value, the events and the book series and 50 Over 50 in Abu Dhabi, that's where it all started. In Hartford, Connecticut, where I worked as a local reporter And kind of used the scrappy skills that you get in local to put together an event. I got to tell you, Molly, what brought women in there was not me, was not Gail, was not like anybody that you, you know, might have known. It was those three words. Know your value. Women, especially now, there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence. We have fallen back in so many ways. We want to know our value and we want to communicate it effectively.
3: Um, I also well up when you tell the story of Bay Path College. It's amazing. And my husband is on the board of this college called Southern New Hampshire, which is another college, right, that does um, education for people who are going back to college. And it is so important that we make education affordable for people. It's very meaningful to me. So I wonder if you could explain how People nominate each other for these two different groups, 30 under 30 and 50 over 50.
4: So with 50 over 50, actually, you we need to start talking about the next U.S. list. Our right. first U.S. list came out three years ago. We had 10,000 submissions in less than two weeks. Just to understand when the 30 under 30 list started for Forbes, their first year, and it's gone global, it's huge. So I can say this, they had a couple hundred. Um, So again, like Know Your Value, 50 over 50 kind of reaches um, an area where women are really hungry for recognition Mm -hmm. and for a sense of their value. And we have found that not just in the United States, but around the world, women are reaching their greatest impact, their most money, their greatest joy. Well, after the age of 50, Whether it's starting families or becoming CEOs or doing a complete pivot, they're doing it and they're killing it. And I can't tell you how many women... We were like, oh my God, this is insane. And so Randall Lane, the head of Forbes, and I, like within minutes, realized after the U.S. 50 over 50 list was launched that we needed to go global. So there is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and there's the Asia list. And we literally have the most incredible responses when we call out to people to sign up. So you can go on Forbes.com or KnowYourValue.com to know how you have to be over 50 and you can nominate yourself, which I think is very KYV, or you can be nominated by a friend or a colleague. Honestly, we do the vetting. It's extremely complicated (laughs) and it's really fun and really rewarding. So talk about some of the speakers you're
3: having at
4: this. Okay, first of all, last year was insane and this year is turning out to be completely different and insane. So we have such a diverse list of of speakers. We meet in Abu Dhabi, the crossroads of the world. The concept is the 30 under 30 listers and the 50 over 50 honorees come to Abu Dhabi. There's a ton of cross-generational mentoring going on. And yet again, Generation Act.
3: What generation are we, Jesse? We get left out, but that's okay. We're not, so well, not listen, complaining. Someday <laughs> you'll be mentioning <50. laughs> You should come, by the way. No, it's our one live show. If it were not our one live show, I would be on my way.
4: Do it live. Do it live from Abu Dhabi. (laughs) Anywho, but it's uh, everything from Shania Twain to Sheila Johnson to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia. We have like Susie Orman. Yes. By the way, know your value. She is my inspo. I mean, I used to watch her talking to people on the phone and I learned to talk to people honestly by watching Susie.
3: Kathy Griffin told me the reason she has money is because of
4: Susie. Really? Yeah, because Susie tells you how to do your money. She does. And she doesn't mince words. She's like, you're doing it all wrong. This is what you need to do. And she doesn't hold back. I love how just blatantly, bluntly honest she is with people about how they need to change their lives. And it's going to be the the event itself. Huma Abedin, as you know, who's also on Morning Mika, is the vice chair. And we're going to have a lot of women from the region as well. who are very well known in their own right in the region. So the mentoring is it goes in so many different directions, younger to older, older to younger, Middle East to Western. You know, I remember the second year when we had Olena Zelenska, Billie Jean King, Gloria Steinem and Hillary Clinton all on stage together. I was like, oh. pinch me right now. I was in the <laughs> elevator and this girl in her 20s, like my daughter's age, she was like, oh, my God, this elevator is so slow. I have got to get to networking. <laughs> and I'm like, who's excited about networking? Like, that w- makes me want to vomit, actually, like networking. <laughs> I don't know why, but it feels like such a chore, you know. Right. And she was she invented the first networking event and loved it so much. That she was like late and freaking out, and I thought, okay, this event is successful. If you've got a twenty-something like, like my twenty-somethings like to stay home, so um, you know, post-COVID twenty-somethings are not, you know, the most like I want to network. But this <laughs> this kid was just on her way, so the event's remarkable. It it really is something that I could have never dreamed of in terms of what people take away from it, no matter. Who they are, where they come from, what their age or background is. And I'm I'm really proud of it. I'm blown away by it, but I'm I'm incredibly proud of as as to what we've been able to accomplish with thirty fifty in Abu Dhabi. So now talk to me about Morning Mika. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Four hours and <laughs> Then, Morning Mika, I love it. Actually, I came into it with a little bit of a bad attitude because the four hours are exhausting. And I just was like, am I going to be able to give it and bring it? And the first, like the pilot, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. I don't know. <laughs> and then I got into it. And now I'm like, oh, Joe, you take this segment. I just had an idea. I need to type it up for Morning Mika. And I'm like, "Can you see me on my iPad? during the show, I'm like typing away because I'm like, oh my God, great thought. So I love it. And I love that Jen, Simone and Huma are the co-hosts. What's fun is that I think they just all, they're all joyful, beautiful, fabulous people who have a different take on things, maybe a little different than I would have, but we come to it with so much joy. And the whole point is to have a lot of fun And to have a really interesting conversation and to move it along quickly. So when you're watching or you pull it up and you stream it while you're doing other things, it's going to move fast. It's not going to bog you down. And you might even like rewind and go, what was that? That was fun. I'm going to use that. So I love it. I think
3: it's great. And I also think that there's so much resistance in media to the idea of women like doing programs together. And there's something really cool about the fact that all the hosts are women.
4: Yeah. I mean, I you know, everyone was like when the we were putting together the show and they're like, well, how should we describe it with a women's take? And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> no, we're just four hosts. We happen to be women, but I, I'm not sitting here going, women, we must be all women. And let's tell everything about women and let's talk about women. We will all talk about things that interest us, which probably will bring us to women's issues, but we're not going to force it. We're going to talk about what's out there and what's bugging us and what's keeping us up at night. Yeah. Well, and I
3: also think ultimately, I mean, all of these elections 23, 2022, 2020, 2018, the story we don't talk about, but they've been women's elections. They've been about Roe. They've been about, you know, Donald Trump's misogyny. I mean, these have been the issues that have propelled us.
4: Yeah. And there have been a lot of things that I, I want to say on Morning Joe. It's not that I haven't had the chance. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's not. It's not Joe interrupting me. It's more, I want to own it and I want to say it right to camera and I want to be very clear about what I'm saying. And I have some things to share about my own personal experience with that former president. And this is a good place for it. Yeah. So interesting. Mika, thank you for joining us. Yay. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being on Morning Joe. We love having you, Molly Joan Fast. You're the best. Oh, it's really fun.
3: Adam Carlson is a recovering
2: political pollster.
3: Welcome to Fast Politics, Adam Carlson.
2: Hi, Molly. How you doing?
3: Good. Adam, what do you do? Explain to us what you do.
2: I am a pollster. I used to work in political polling for a Democratic polling organization. I sold out a bit, working more in corporate stuff, so I'm more of an outside observer, but I kind of lived and breathed that world for about six years or so.
3: So explain to us a little bit about what polling is now and what it was before and how it's changed a little bit. Give us a little writ large. On polling.
2: Of course. Yeah. So right now we are no surprise to anybody. Polling is a bit volatile these days and it faces a lot of structural challenges. A lot of people, you see all these spam callers on your phone. Most people will pick up the phone.
3: And those are pollsters, right? Calling you.
2: Yeah. So so they're calling you and response rates, which used to be even like 15, 20 years ago, were close to 10 percent or 15 percent are now down to you're lucky to get two or three percent response rate on phone polls, which is Obviously, you're not going to get necessarily a great representative population, so pollsters take great effort to to ensure that they have a representative sample. They're contacting people over the phone, but it's expensive to do a a really, really good phone poll. So you see a lot of kind of junk pollsters come in and do either phone polls with not a lot of uh, strict methodology to cut corners and save costs or we'll do online polls. And there's a lot of really good online pollsters out there and a lot of cheap, trashy ones as well. So it's really important to understand uh, which ones are doing their due diligence and are acting in good faith, which ones are kind of cutting corners or trying to push a narrative. And I think that 538's pollster ratings, which they put out a few weeks ago, do a really good job of looking at their track records and how transparent they are in their methodology. It used to be a hell of a lot easier to poll even 10, 20, 30 years ago than it is now.
3: When you poll, you have this larger question, right? We have in America a very shifting electorate. One of the reasons why the polls were so off in 2016 was that Trump brought out voters who had never voted before.
2: Yep. And the same thing happened in in 2020 as well. I mean, he overperformed his polling in both elections. And kind of a little known fact is that poll was pretty good Uh, In the Trump era, when he wasn't on the ballot in 2018 and 2022, but when he's on the ballot, things tend to get a little little screwy because, to your point, a lot of his supporters are pretty distrustful of institutions, including polling, because Trump has railed against them when they haven't been benefiting him. He loves them now because they mostly show him ahead. But they're much less likely to pick up the phone or to even take an online survey. So it's harder and harder to reach his base.
3: Let's sort of talk about what is happening right now. You have a really interesting thesis. There's a lot of polling that shows Trump ahead in varying degrees, but there's also a lot of polling that is junky, that is messing up the averages.
2: So in 2022, there was this big narrative that was being uh, pushed by a lot of media outlets that it's going to be this big red wave. And a lot of that was informed by, again, these kind of junk pollsters, like your Trafalgar's, your inside advantages.
3: Rasputin.
2: Yes. It's not Rasputin. Yeah. It's, yes. Rasmussen, who were just putting out, again, these cheap polls, whether they were acting in good faith or whether they were kind of cutting corners on methodology, they were showing Republicans doing better both nationally and in key swing districts and swing states. And that's why A lot of folks were surprised when Democrats ended up holding their own in a lot of these uh, key races, almost holding the House, which was pretty much unfathomable to most people beforehand. But the site Split Ticket, which does a lot of great work on this and kind of pokes holes in a lot of conventional wisdom using data, had an average for the national popular vote for the House which only included high-quality pollsters. And they got really close to the the final result. Again, by being discerning and looking at, okay, who is a reputable pollster? Not ones that are showing good results for your candidate, but ones that are doing their homework. And so we're kind of seeing a bit of a version of that. Again, this year, it's still early, but uh, some data I worked on with The Economist using 538's new pollster ratings uh, for a Trump versus Biden 2024 head-to-head race found that polls taken in in January of 2024 of the really good, highly rated pollsters only had Trump ahead by under a point, actually 0.2 points. If you look at pollsters that are ranked most poorly, so the ones we were just talking about, your Foggers, et cetera, they had Trump up five. So it's under one point versus five points. Obviously, Biden wants to be ahead, but an under one point popular vote margin is definitely easier to come back from than being down five. So a lot of media... And sites like RCP will just group all of these pollsters together regardless of quality. When in reality, if you kind of look at it by, all right, what's their track record? Are they acting in good faith? Are they publishing their methodology? You can get a what is potentially a more realistic average. We won't know until Election Day. But I think an average is only as good as the polls you include in it.
3: I want to go from here to the idea of polling as disinformation. So 2022, Ron Johnson wildly insane, not super popular, candidate runs against him called Mandela Barnes. He is the sort of grassroots candidate, wins the primary versus a sort of more traditional candidate. He is polling six, seven, eight points behind. He loses by a very small one point less, you know, a little less than one point margin. I mean, he was basically destroyed by polls, right?
2: A lot of those decisions. So to your point, uh, Mandela Barnes was pretty much cut loose by the uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and triaged to focus on other races. Yeah, they do their own internal polling as well, which we never get to see. That also probably showed... It probably informed it for sure. Um, and he, for whatever reason... So they were all wrong. They were all wrong. And polls are wrong. And, I mean, Wisconsin has had some big misses in polling recently, too. I don't know if you remember the poll that had Biden up by 17 there in 2020, October 28th, 2020, um, which obviously is a big, a big outlier. But to your point, it was clearly a pattern, right, where he outperformed his polling. And then in retrospect, if Democrats had uh, invested in Barnes the way they had in other races like Arizona, Pennsylvania... It's a very good chance he would have won, and Ron Johnson is one of the most right-wing senators in a representing a state that Biden won, which is very rare these days. That one really hurts. I don't necessarily buy for that race that it was disinformation.
3: Certainly in that race, I don't think it was. But there's clearly a way to shift the narrative via polls.
2: Yes, and this was actually a point that one of Nate Silver's hypotheses, which ended up not looking so great in 2022, was that well Republicans are releasing all these polls from their internal their internal polls and Republican affiliated pollsters that are skewing these averages like Democrats could do that too but they aren't so it's kind of like a free market effect and maybe that was Democrats didn't believe their own numbers maybe they just wanted to keep it close to the vest who knows but in reality it was just them flooding the zone with Republican meaning polls again whether that was good faith poor methodology just a you know a regular polling miss We'll never really know, but it did shape the narrative leading up to it. And we don't really know what the effects of that narrative shaping are. Did it shift funding? Probably. Did it prohibit Democrats from donating in races that they otherwise would be competitive because they were despondent? You never know. It could be it could have had the opposite effect. But polling for better or for worse, I would argue mostly for worse, does shape the narrative, which the media narrative especially, especially if we don't have much else to go on. People are trying to read the tea leaves from these like uncontested presidential primaries right now, and they're grasping at straws for the most part, and polling is the only thing to talk about right now. And right now, the narrative is that Trump is winning. Biden's in trouble. That drives clicks. But it's a a little more complicated than that, I think.
3: Yeah. So let's talk about this because there is also one other factor here that is deeply involved in polling, and that is no labels. Mark Penn's wife's organization, Nancy Jacobson. So Mark Penn has a polling company. Can you talk a little bit about that? No Labels is a third party organization that fundraises, gets a lot of money from Republicans, really desperately wants to make the case that Biden cannot win and that a third party candidate needs to come in. They've had some trouble trying to find a third party candidate, but that is their goal.
2: So Mark Penn heads up the Stagwell Group, which partners with uh, Harvard University on the Harvard-Harris Caps poll. He also has an organization called Harris X, which primarily does tech and telecom polling, but has been doing political polling since at least 2018. They put out some kind of eye-popping headlines, and Dave Weigel did a great story about this particularly around Israel. And they did a lot of polling around the Bob Mueller case, if everyone <laughs> remembers that, I feel like, decades ago. That kind of raised some headlines has shown some some polling or they've put out some maps that show this kind of viability for a third party candidate that had been met with some skepticism. Right. Which
3: is very convenient because the wife is running a organization that is running a third party candidate
2: or trying to. I think the press is waking up to that a little bit. I think that'll take more shape if and when they find a, a candidate, which supposedly will be as soon as March. But there's been a lot of stories now, Adam Bass has been doing a lot of good research on this and some good stories on this, but they're just really struggling to find a candidate. They're on the, ball- the ballots in some states, but they're having a lot of internal issues, including with their their funders, who ought to be more of a, an issue based organization. Don't they have some donors who are suing them? Yes, Robert Durst. So it's members of the Durst family. Because they feel it's a bait and switch, right? Yeah, they wanted to be kind of based on issues and finding a middle path and bipartisanship, I believe. There was a whole time story about this. And they feel that they're not getting what they paid for because they're trying to field the third party candidate, which most people are concerned about would hurt Biden more than Trump. Especially given that there's all the people that are going to decide this election are people that don't really like either of them. And they may may have a take towards a a Joe Manchin or a Larry Hogan or people who are more in the middle of the spectrum.
3: Of course, it's hard to see the difference between a Joe Manchin and a Joe Biden when they largely read a lot alike, except that Joe Manchin worked on killing some of Joe Biden's more fulsome legislation. You know, I mean, it's sort of amazing, like. I think Joe Manchin is more for the donor class, right, than Joe Biden, because, I mean, ultimately he cares about, you know, it was a lot of decisions about taxes and trying to deprive working people of benefits. So let's just talk for another minute about polling methodology. Sometimes pollsters will look at the numbers and sort of rejigger them in other ways, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, in 2012, if anyone remembers that far back, there was this whole Republican leading organization called Unskewed Polls or this guy that this journalist, I believe, or a blogger started, which was taking these polls that were showing good results for Barack Obama and being like, oh, no, this party identification, like there's too many Democrats in this poll. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the data, I'm gonna reweight it, add more Republicans or more independents or what have you. And like here's what the actual numbers are. And of course, in retrospect, this is kind of silly, but there's been written about extensively that the Romney campaign was buying into this. And they entered into Election Day thinking, well, all these polls are wrong. They're polling too many Democrats, voting too many Democrats, and we're going to win. And he was genuinely flabbergasted, even though most of the, poll- the polls are very, very good that year. It showed Obama winning by a few points. He won by a few points in a comfortable electoral college margin. But it's funny, this year, it's just, we kind of see a bit of the opposite happening, where a lot of polls are showing potentially implausibly good polls for Trump. But maybe they're maybe they're accurate. You know, we don't know. It's still nine months out. Although there's reasons to be skeptical, which we can get into later. But there's Democrats who are just like seeing polls that are unfavorable to Biden and saying, no, this can't be true. This can't be right. The polls are broken and this isn't right. And then I understand that skepticism, especially after 2016 and 2020. But they're still really important for showing us where the races are most competitive. Even if you t- take them seriously, not literally, you're actually they're still pretty accurate. And there's this huge discourse that's been happening with like Simon Rosenberg and Matt Iglesias if the election were held today who would win, and I think it's kind of a silly premise to begin with, because it's not. Campaigns matter. The Biden campaign and the Trump campaign will spend billions and billions of dollars and their allies. A lot of people still don't know that's gonna be the matchup. I know that's kind of hard to believe. No,
3: I think that's absolutely right.
2: It's like a third of the electorate still doesn't kind of either doesn't want to believe it or doesn't believe it. So I think everyone just needs to be a little bit more patient about this instead of just immediately attacking the polls, like polls are misunderstood as these kind of predictive things this far out.
3: Right. And not just a moment in time. and Exactly right. Shifts. It seems like 2016, the polls were wrong because they weren't able to poll Trump. Right. The Trump factor, whatever that is. And you're saying that, again, in 2020, the polls were wrong because they weren't able to pull the Trump factor. But Biden was able to pull out more voters, too. So it ended up working out.
2: Right. Yeah, I think it's definitely 2020 is a bit more complicated and there's a lot of theories. But I think there was some of that kind of repeat, But just it's. Trump voters are kind of weird and hard to contact sometimes that can skew things. The polls had Biden winning in 2020, and it got that the national popular vote decently right, but really underestimated Trump in the swing states. So he still won. So directionally, like they got they said Biden was going to win and he did. But it was very, very, very narrow. And that was not the case from what the polls were showing. I thought it was going to be a pretty comfortable win.
3: So basically, when Trump is on the ballot... It's much, much harder to pull.
2: It's a small sample size, but for the data we do have, 2016 and 2020, yeah, it tends to be a little bit unpredictable. And the past two times, it's worked in his favor. But one theory that some people have, which is, again, hard to prove, is that pollsters have been looking for answers. Going back to the beginning of this podcast, Like, what are the problems facing the industry? Sometimes pollsters are changing their methodology from cycle to cycle to be like, all right, we're having trouble getting a representative sample getting enough Republicans or getting enough young people or people of color on the phone, which are just harder to get in general. So it's possible they could overcorrect, change the methodology too much, and underestimate Biden. I think that's an underrated possibility. Again, we won't know. Just because something's happened twice before doesn't mean it's going to happen a third time.
3: Oh, so interesting and also so strange. Are you guys going to figure out a new way to do polling?
2: <laughs> it's a constant conversation. I mostly do, again, for mostly a corporate nonprofit clients, although there's a bit in the political realm, to do online polling. The issue with that is you can't get a truly well, as much as you can ever get a truly representative sample because you have to opt in, you have to click in. And you usually you're you're paid for your answers versus phone polls. You can do a random digit dialing. You can work from very, very large voter lists and work from there, get a representative sample. Then you have the response rate issue. The New York Times did a good, uh, really interesting experiment in Wisconsin in 2022 with mail voting, I mean mail polling rather, to see if that would increase response rates. They gave a little incentive. Uh, that's not really replicable on a on a big scale cuz just takes too long to get everything back and there's a lot more logistics involved people try and contact via text messages so honestly the industry is always looking for answers always looking to improve and understands that i think just one or two more big polling misses away from further distrust in the industry, but but I can tell you that after 2016, when I was working for the Democratic pollster, you know we were just looking for, we were looking for answers. And we were like, okay, we got to really examine what worked, what didn't. If we got a state right, was it for the right reasons, or we had two errors canceling each other out? It's always a challenge. So to answer your question, I don't know if we'll find the silver bullet, but I think it's important to keep searching for it. And I think 2024 will be very instructive if they if the polling industry gets the margin wrong a third time by a big amount. I think it was going to be even deeper soul searching and even deeper and quite deserved public skepticism.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me. And now your moment of fuckery.
3: Who is your moment of fuckery? We covered a lot of shit.
0: My moment of fuckery this week is the special counsel (laughs) who (laughs) decided he was going to try to make this into a, a, a job application in the Trump 2.0 administration instead of a straight up the middle analysis of the legal case that he was hired and swore an oath to examine. If, like me, you, you read that thing and thought, wow, this is an editorial, not an actual fucking legal case, you would be, like I am, kind of pissed off and you think this is a moment of fuckery. And it is.
3: My favorite actually thought on this comes from our friend Joe Scarborough, who said they couldn't indict Biden legally, so they tried to indict him politically.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Joe's exactly correct on that. A hundred percent right. None of this had to go this way, but this guy chose to make this into a very uh, personal dig on Biden. Look, I think it was exceedingly unprofessional and exceedingly shitty. And yet, you know, remember... This is a guy who found a place in the Trump administration, so that tells you an awful lot about his character.
3: Thank you, Rick Wilson.
0: As always, I am happy to be with you, and I will see you again next week. Yay.
3: That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out of pocket costs.
2: That can be a lot
3: of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider.